0: of the Son, of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Please be seated. Once again, I ask that you turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Most helpful that you follow along. It is easy to get lost in this text. Revelation chapter 14, we're looking at verses 6 through 20. Last week, We were encouraged by the security we have in Christ because we are marked by God and because he is our father. Such encouragement is needed for Christians who are being persecuted for their faith. And as we will see today, such encouragement is needed when judgment day comes. In fact, it is even needed when judgment day comes. Is described. As we study this section of scripture, I remind you of my position that the events of John's vision do not have to be taken in chronological order. We are free to understand that the events described in chapters 13 and 14 are the same events described in chapters 7, 8, and 9 we can also understand that what goes on in chapter 14 verses 6 through 20 occurs concurrently with what is described in chapter 14 verses 1 through 5. While John sees the chosen people of God around the throne of the Lamb, he also sees the three angels who announce and bring forth final judgment. Before we hear commentary on the passage as a whole, let us look at the particulars of the vision. This is where you can follow along with me. John sees another angel. Because he has described so many angels thus far, the reference to another simply adds this one to the rest. The angel symbolizes the preaching of the gospel around the world, which is a fulfillment of, of our Lord's promise as articulated in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, where Jesus said, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. That promise is a fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham when he was told that by him, that is by Abraham, all nations will be blessed. Just Hearing the gospel, whether you respond to it positively or not, but just hearing the gospel is a blessing. We are assured then, before the final judgment begins, that God has fulfilled all of his promises, and the time to commence his judgment has arrived. The angel that claims the eternal gospel to all nations is the same, that announces the judgment of God. We marvel at this vision for it shows again the mercy of God as he mixes the preaching of the good news with the coming of the end and the condemnation of those who have rebelled against him and chosen to worship false gods. His love knows no bounds as he proves that he takes no pleasure in punishing the wicked He desires that all would be saved. But alas, not all are saved. We moderns stumble over such an understanding because we tend to think that if we want something and we can get it done, then we should do it. But God has insisted that a certain amount of autonomy is involved in having faith, and thus those who don't believe choose not to. The second angel is next seen in verse 8 and says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Babylon is a name given to a dominating world power such as Rome. The phrase was used in the vision given to Daniel. Babylon is a type name given to the world powers that persecute the people of God. Babylon represents Rome, it represents Islamic ruled countries, Hindu ruled countries, Buddhist ruled countries, communist ruled countries, and any secular nation that has or will rise against the church, all come under the identity of Babylon. The description, quote, made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries, confirms our interpretation of what it meant for the 144,000 not to defile themselves with women. The women are those who try to deceive men with false teachings and thus lead them away from worshiping the true God of the universe. The third angel follows with a loud voice. The announcement is not gent- a gentle one, and so his tone matches his words. Those who worship the beast and receive its mark are considered of one class. Just as we discussed last week, There is no middle ground. People are either marked by the beast or they are marked by God. Those of the class that are marked by the beast will drink of God's fury. These people will be tormented, and their torment will rise up forever and ever. We will come back to this description later, but a brief comment is necessary. There are some who want to believe that hell or suffering of sinners will be for a moment and then the sinners will be no more. This is called annihilation. Some do not like the idea that God would torture sinners continuously and forever. The simplest reading of this passage is that he will indicating that he does not want us to think otherwise. We are to understand eternal damnation as eternal suffering. Verse 12 is another call for patience. The same patience called for in chapter 6, where you remember the saints were crying up for retribution. The vision assures that retribution is coming but no timeline is given. What the Christian is to be concerned for is obedience to God's commands and his or her faithfulness to Jesus. The pronouncement of blessing upon those who die in the Lord is an encouragement that that although retribution may not happen in the lifetime of particular Christians who are persecuted, There is a great hope for reward and justice in the life after. The next part of the vision describes one who is like the son of man sitting on a white cloud. The phrase like a son of man comes from the book of Daniel. We read that this morning, which describes the coming Messiah as the son of man. Jesus took on the title because he was born a man. He was fully man and yet fully God. Thus, he is not ashamed to be called the son of man. On Ascension Day, an angel described to the disciples that Jesus would return coming from the eastern sky on white clouds of heaven. His return would bring forth from the grave those who had died in him and he would bring up to himself those who were still alive. This is the harvest of his people. The harvest is described in John's vision as being by way of a golden sickle, which is appropriate in the hands of the one who has a golden crown upon his head. He is the king of the universe and gold is the only metal fitting for a king. Jesus was candidly speaking when he told the disciples that it was not for the Son of Man to know the time in which he would return. In John's vision, the voice of an angel announces the time, and it is obvious that the Savior was ready. For just after the angel speaks these words, the Savior swings his sickle to harvest the earth. When he walked this earth, Jesus said that judgment day would be like a harvest where the harvester would separate the wheat from the chaff. The wheat consists of those who are ripe and useful. The chaff consists of those who hide among the wheat and are useless. What Jesus harvests as he swings his golden sickle is the wheat. The wheat is his people. When it is time to harvest the evildoers, the worshipers of the second beast, the vision changes. It is not chaff that is described as being cut down, but grapes. An angel is specifically assigned to take a sharp sickle, which is obviously distinct from the golden sickle held by the Savior. And with it, this angel is to cut off clusters of grapes. The grapes are ripe, meaning that the sin of the people has come to its fullest. The grapes collected are then thrown into the winepress of the the wrath of God. This is not the first time in the Bible that God's judgment is referred to as a winepress and the disobedient as grapes. In Isaiah chapter 63... God speaks through the prophet and describes his judgment as a wine press. There in Isaiah, the Lord explains that his garments are red because he has trampled upon the rebellious nations as a man would trample upon grapes. They're spattered my garments and I stained all my clothing, he says from Isaiah. The Lord describes his emotions in his judgment, saying that he was appalled that no one was there to help him. No one gives him support in his judgment. His own wrath sustains him, and he makes his enemies drunk and pours their blood on the ground. The amount of blood described reveals how violent the vengeance of God will be. A horse's bridle as a measurement could refer back to the four horsemen of the apocalypse as we studied from chapter six, or it could be a reference to the savior as he rides in on a victorious horse in chapter 19. Either way, the reference to a horse is to focus on war and victory. The measurement of 1600 stadia is another symbolic number. Stay with me here. 16 is the number four squared. We recall that number four refers to the earth, the four corners of the earth or the compass. 100 is 10 squared, 10 being the number of completeness. Together we have 16 multiplied by 100, meaning meaning that the blood covers all of the created world. Blood covering the created world means that no one can escape God's judgment. So now we turn to some commentary. I said at the beginning of this sermon that we should marvel that in the midst of God's pronounced judgment, the gospel is still going forth. We are to notice from this that God is benevolent to his creation. He loves his creation. As stated, he does not take pleasure in punishing the wicked. He wills that no man be condemned, but that all would come to repentance. But how does this match up with his wrath? His wrath being compared to a wine press. After all, he is the operator of the wine press. He personally smashes the nations and thus spills the blood of men, so that it runs down and covers all the earth. We might consider that God would have to enjoy such vengeance in order to act in such a manner. Having an even greater sensitivity, we might question why God does not simply pardon all men. After all, if he does not enjoy seeing the wicked punished and wills that all men be saved, why doesn't he simply choose not to punish the wicked and instead save them? We will answer such questions from two directions. First, we must remember St. Paul's first letter to Timothy, where we read that God wills, none should perish, but all would come to repentance. The use of the phrase God wills is not to be understood as what God has ordained to come to pass but rather a way to express God's disposition he does not want to punish the wicked his heart's desire is that all would come to repentance again because we are tempted to perceive God as we perceive ourselves we might wonder why he doesn't do What we would do, which is to do whatever we want to do. If we do not desire for something to be as it is, then we try to change it. If we have the power to change it, we will change it. And since God is all-powerful, we conclude that he would change whatever he wants to change. In the category of discipline, for example, if I didn't want to spank my son, or punish him for his behavior because I was moved by sadness, then I wouldn't spank or punish him. It is that simple, but God is not that simple. We allow our emotions, be they justified or not, to dictate our behavior. God expresses emotions, but such emotions do not dictate him as to what he will do. To be able to act out of what is righteous while feeling otherwise, that is divine. When men are able to do so, they do so by divine strength. The other direction from which we answer such questions about God's judgment compared to his disposition is from the text itself. Go back to verse 10 of the chapter where those who took the mark of the beast are described as being tormented by burning sulfur. The text says that their torment is in the presence of holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Stated more obviously, those who suffer do so in front of the Savior's view. Jesus sees them suffer and does not stop or in any way interfere with their suffering. We wonder how he could do so if his disposition is for them not to suffer. We wonder because we are not divine. Only he who is divine can weep and do the right that causes the weeping. We also learn from Isaiah that the one inflicting the suffering is none other than God himself. He is the one with the wine press. He states that his wrath sustains him as he suffers upon men. He keeps his judgment going by the sense of his wrath. To appreciate God's wrath, we must appreciate his disdain for sin. God has a righteous disdain for sin. God's character, being holy, cannot tolerate sin. He who appeased his own wrath towards sin by killing his only son will practice wrath upon anyone who rejects his son and clings to sin. And it is not as simple as saying that God's wrath towards sin is greater than his disposition toward the sinner. They are both powerful, and both he can practice at the same time. We cannot understand this. I know we cannot, because even as I wrote this sermon, I knew I was describing something I will never, ever fully know. When I was a boy, about the age of 12, I remember my father trying to find his belt so that he could spank my little brother, who was about the age of seven. As he searched for his belt, my brother wailed and carried on like he was being sent to the gallows. I hated to hear his cry, and so I myself cried out to my father for him. Don't! Stop! Can't you see he's sorry? He won't do it again. I cried out for my younger brother because I empathized with him. I knew what it was like to be in his shoes and his anticipated pain reminded me of my own. In an odd way, when we empathize or even plead for someone, we are in some way pleading for ourselves. When we are tempted to perceive God as cold-hearted and cruel for inflicting his wrath upon sinners and for the Savior watching without interference, we are likely thinking about it from a selfish perspective. We wouldn't want it to be us and so we don't want it to be anyone else. But Jesus sees it differently. Jesus knows what it is to be bludgeoned by the wrath of God. Jesus doesn't stand by gazing while imagining what it would be like. He knows. And because he knows, he is responsible A responsible witness to what is right understanding God's wrath and loving disposition helped me as a father I could spank my child with a rod and know that I am right in doing so and I can spank him for yelling and carrying on as if he does not accept his own punishment which is what my father should have done I can do this all with the disposition of love For it really is love because it is what a rebellious child needs. The described wrath of God is to have a more profound effect upon us than practical fatherhood, however. We are to understand that that just as God can administer his wrath upon the rebellious and and still have the disposition of love, so too can we wait patiently for his wrath to come upon those who persecute the church and so we still can love them? We can pray that God's wrath would be known, but at the same time pray for our enemies to come to repentance. How we do this is found only in us coming under the authority, the influence of the Holy Spirit, and doing as Jesus instructed. You remember these words, Love your enemies, he said. Pray for those who persecute you. And then he said, for those who do it are acting as true sons of the Father. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we want to be true sons of yours. We want to be true inheritors and people who behave as your inheritors. And so with this challenge, help us to love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us, and ask for your divine judgment. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.